For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Today's episode of Real Talk with Zuby is sponsored by my own book, Strong Advice, Zuby's Guide to Fitness for Everybody. As we approach this holiday period and the winter season when people tend to let themselves go, I think it's even more important that you make sure that you keep your body on track, both with your training and with your nutrition. If you struggle to stay motivated and consistent with your diet and exercise, I break it all down for you in simple terms so that you can really understand it and put this information to use in a way that you can remember it forever and you can change your life for the better forever. If you struggle to lose weight, if you're struggling to build muscle, trying to lose fat, trying to get fitter, trying to get stronger, whatever your goal is, Strong Advice will show you how to do that. Now, if you want to get a copy of Strong Advice, Zuby's Guide to Fitness for Everybody, go to teamzuby.com and you can check it out on there. It's available on ebook, paperback, and audiobook. I've been going to the gym for 16 years myself and I've made a whole ton of mistakes, so I wrote this book so that you don't have to. You can go and you can get the most effective workouts in, you can craft your diet properly, and you can make sure you hit your goals and stick with your plan. Strong advice, Zuby's Guide to Fitness for Everybody. You can go check that out right now at teamzuby.com. Now on with the program. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stunting your destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. Sick like a bang, click and I bang, y'all gonna remember the name. Y'all gonna remember the name. What's up ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world. I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. On today's episode, we have got on a very, very special guest. This is someone whose work I have been familiar with literally since I was a child. He is the creator of the world-famous Dilbert cartoon strip. He is also the author of several books, including How to Fail at Everything and Still Win Big, Win Bigly, and his brand new book, Loser Think. And this is, of course, Scott Adams. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Awesome, man. So I've just done a super short intro there, but for anyone who may be listening to this who doesn't know who you are, how would you describe yourself to people? Well, mostly they know me as the creator of Dilbert, but in recent years I've been writing non-Dilbert books on everything from how to improve your life to persuasion and now how to think better with Loser Think. So I'm becoming more known as a political commentator, but mostly on the in the field of persuasion as it as it applies to politics. I've got a background uh, in hypnosis. I'm a trained hypnotist, and I've been studying persuasion for years. So that gives me an extra thing to talk about in terms of politics. Awesome. What I'd like to do, because um, I've watched a ton of different interviews with you, but um, I haven't seen many where you've kind of really told your own story. Lots of the ones I've seen, it's been kind of getting into the the politics stuff and predictions and Trump and all these, all these various things. But I'm very, very curious. Like I said in the intro, I mean, I remember, I mean, I grew up in Saudi Arabia and I remember seeing the Dilbert cartoon from when I was like a kid in elementary school, I think even. 
I remember just seeing the clips. Lots of my teachers were American and sometimes they'd have uh, various sort of cartoon books and stuff like that. And I always remember seeing that strip alongside some of the other ones, you know, like Garfield and stuff like that. So I'm curious to know a little bit more about your story. Dilbert times prior to that, everything. What's, what's your life story? Well, I'll start when I was six years old. Okay. Uh, I like to take it back to the beginning. Uh, when I was about six, I decided I wanted to be a famous cartoonist. And specifically, I wanted to be the next Charles Schultz, who did Peanuts. He was super famous in my childhood, way, way more famous than we imagine cartoonists are in, in current age. So it was sort of like being a YouTube star or a movie star if you were a big cartoonist back in those days. But despite my many hours of trying to draw, I never got really good at it. <laughs> and at about the age of 11, I realized, hey, wait a minute. The odds of becoming one in seven billion, or I guess it was probably six billion at the time, uh, you know, and getting the top job in the world, literally the best job you could even imagine drawing comics and getting overpaid for it. And I thought, okay, well, it's not realistic. So I entered an age of what I would call my, my realistic years, mm. where I was just pursuing what was statistically, you know, a, a, more of a sure thing. So I thought, well, I'll study hard, get good grades. Um, I'll, you know, go to college. I'll be a lawyer or a business guy, something like that. So that was my plan. So I went to college, uh, I did real well in school, got, got some scholarships, got a degree in economics, and went to work for a big bank. Mm. It was not rewarding work, <laughs> to say the least. You know, cubicles were involved, and I never made any difference to anything. Uh, most of it was just trying to get through the day and not getting, get in trouble. Uh, I was just one, many, one of many, you know, uh, clones in these cubicles doing absolutely nothing. <laughs> and so anyway, that career didn't work out. I went to Pacific Bell after about eight years, spent a few years there, and that career wasn't working out either. Uh, I, I, I didn't tell the story of why those careers didn't work out for years because okay. I couldn't tell it honestly, so I just would avoid it. But I'm going to tell it to you honestly. Please do. My banking career ended when my boss, a woman, which is important to the story, called me into her office one day and said, you know, I don't know how to tell you this, but the company just got in a lot of trouble because we have no diversity in senior management. Mm. And she said, I'm just going to tell you straight. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but she said it as directly as I'm going to say it. We can't promote you because you're a white male, and I don't know when that's going to change. Wow. And what, so, what sort of... What sort of year was this? So this was uh, mid-80s. That's very interesting because th this is something that I think wouldn't shock people if it happened now, but I think yeah. people would be surprised that that happened in the mid-80s. Right. And so I said to myself, well, there's no point in staying here because I was not really looking for a stay-in-my-cubicle kind of career. Mm -hmm. I wanted something that didn't have a, a, a cap on it. You know, I wanted to see how far I could rise. So I switched jobs. Uh, coincidentally, right after I switched jobs, my entire department I left got fired. <laughs> they, they all <laughs> lost their jobs right after I left uh, in a merger. Wells Fargo bought the bank and just fired the whole department. So that worked out. So I went to Pacific Bell, got on their management track, 
And I was identified as, you know, somebody who's senior management potential. I was finishing up my MBA at night. I was doing all the right stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I talked right. I walked right. I dressed right. Did everything. And one day my boss called me into his office and he said, kind of awkward. I don't know how to tell you this, but Pacific Bell just got in a lot of trouble for having no diversity in senior management. And he said, I'm just going to tell you straight, I can't promote you now or in the foreseeable future because you're white and male. Wow. And so let, let me give you some context for this. Now, the reason I didn't tell this story the honest way for years is the atmosphere wasn't right. You know, you, you just couldn't honestly tell that story because it sounds like a white guy complaining, you know, another white guy whining. Mm. Why don't you take your white privilege and go to anywhere else because you've got a million opportunities. And I actually agree with all of that. A hundred percent of that I agree with. Uh, I was a white guy in the right place at the right time, except by weird coincidence, I wasn't. It was just these little... <laughs> these microscopic, you know, um, pockets of society, which was just the wrong place to be at the wrong time. Yeah. But everywhere else, you know, there, there's no denying the fact that everywhere else looked good. Mm. So I thought, well, I, I'm going to have to try to find a job that doesn't have a boss. <laughs> that, was, that was my main requirement. I'm going to have to find something that doesn't have a boss. So I tried a few things. I tried writing software. I tried you know, a few other publication type things. And Dilbert was just the thing that worked. So it was just one of the things I tried to find an exit from having a boss. And now there's a little bit more of a story of how that worked. Yeah, depending on your level of interest, I can tell you or not. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm I'm very interested. Um, Please please tell us more. How did the Dilbert concept come to life? And how did you go about taking it from just an idea in your head to something that became a massive international success and still is. So Dilbert began when I was working my cubicle jobs and it was just a character that I sort of evolved or, you know, developed over time. And I would just draw little funny things on my whiteboard. And sometimes if I did a presentation as part of my job, I'd put in some funny jokes or I thought they were funny and people kept saying, Hey, you should do something with this. You should you know, try to take this professionally. Mm. And I thought, well, why not? But, but it, this is hard to imagine in, in today's world. But in pre-internet days, it was really hard to figure out how to do stuff. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. if, you're, if you're 30, you don't know what that's like. You don't know <laughs> thinking to yourself, you know, I would like that information. And there's no way to get it. <laughs> it just can't be gotten. So I didn't know how to go about it. How do you become a cartoonist? So one day when I was thinking about it, but not doing anything about it, um, luck happened. Now, I'm always careful to say, if you're tuned to a certain you know, objective, sometimes you notice things that maybe you just wouldn't have noticed before. So it might not have been luck. It could have been because my, my mind was tuned to a specific objective. Mm-hmm. And I noticed a TV show as I was flipping through the channels one day on how to become a cartoonist. Okay. Now, I've never seen that before. And I've never seen an episode of it since, Mm. but exactly the time I needed to know that there was a TV show on how to become a cartoonist. And I happened to see it. Now, as luck would have it, I missed, I don't know, 25 minutes of the 30 minute episode (laughs) and I didn't get enough to actually know how to become a cartoonist. 
but I knew that somebody knew. So I, as the closing credits were going by, I grabbed a pencil and a piece of paper and I quickly wrote down the name of the studio and where, where it was. And I sent a letter, regular snail mail letter. Pre, this is pre-email. Mm-hmm. And the host of the show, his name is Jack Casty. He's, he, he was and I think still is a working cartoonist. And he wrote back a two-page handwritten letter a few weeks later in which he said, you know, buy this book. It'll tell you how to submit samples to various places. Use these materials, this kind of pens. So I took his advice, got the book he recommended, got the materials, the paper, the pens, and I started drawing. And I put together some of my finest comics, and I sent them off to the major magazines that paid the most for comics. At the yeah. time, it was, uh, I think, The New Yorker and Playboy were the, the ones who paid the most. Mm-hmm. Now, my comics were rejected, and they were not even rejected personally. They, you know, I just got a, something that looked like a photocopy of somebody else's rejection <laughs> in the mail. Sorry, we are not looking for anything like this at this time, and no time in the future will we ever be looking. I'm, I'm exaggerating, but <laughs> yeah. it was not encouraging, sure. shall we say. So I said to myself, well, you know, I tried. It was one of many things I tried, mm-hmm. and it, again, it didn't work. So I took all my art materials, put it in a closet, and said, ah, forget about it. You know, I'm done with this. I'll try to find something else. Okay. A year goes by, and one day I go onto my mailbox, and there's a second letter from the cartoonist who had given me the original advice. And we'd had no contact in that year. Mm-hmm. And he said that he was cleaning his office, and he came upon, under a big stack of stuff, my samples that I'd sent him. And he said that he was just following up to make sure that I hadn't given up. Mm. And that was the only point. Okay. There was nothing else in the letter. He said he was just writing to make sure I hadn't given up. That's in his original letter, which I went back and checked because I saved it, mm-hmm. he said, it's a really tough industry. And he gave me this advice. He said, you're going to get rejected a lot. Don't give up. But I did give up. Mm-hmm. So I took some of his advice uh, from the first letter. I got the materials in the book he recommended, but I didn't take his second part, which was the giving up part. Mm-hmm. And a year later, with no prompting, no communication, he, he, with, you know, he just sent me a letter and said, I want to make sure you didn't give up. And it really moved me, partly because it was so unselfish. Yeah. There was nothing he asked for, nothing he's ever asked for, Nothing he could have asked for. Mm-hmm. I didn't have anything. <laughs> uh, and so I got my materials out and decided to raise my sights. Rather than being rejected by mere magazines, I said, I'm going to try to become a syndicated cartoonist, the highest level of cartooning, because if you get a syndication company to give you a contract, they're the ones who sell it to all the newspapers and they handle licensing and books and calendars. Okay. So if you can get one of those deals, and then you can perform, you're in good shape. Mm-hmm. So I sent it off to the, I don't know, there were several cartoon syndication companies. Uh, and I thought they all rejected me after a few weeks. So I would get the rejections one at a time by mail. And then I thought I had them all. And I put my, put my materials back in the closet. And I said, well, now I've tried twice. Mm-hmm. And I did my best. You know, I, I felt good about my effort. It just mm-hmm. didn't work out. And a few weeks go by. And I get a phone call from a woman who identified herself as working for some company I'd never heard of, some, some company called United Media. Okay. 
And I hadn't sent my samples to anybody by that name, but she said she had seen them somehow. I didn't know how. And she wanted to offer me a contract to be a syndicated cartoonist. Now, keep in mind, this is a phone call that's almost exactly like you just won the lottery. <laughs> it's, the, it's the most important phone call you'll ever get in your life if you're a cartoonist. Mm. And it was an offer. It wasn't even that we're interested. It was an offer. And I said, well, I'm very flattered, but I had some business experience by this time, and I'm a little skeptical. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm, I'm flattered, but I've never heard of your company, this United Media Company. Is there anybody I could talk to who could give me a, a reference for your company? Yeah. Is, or is there anybody you've worked with who maybe has ever been published somewhere in a I don't know, magazine ad or anything? Mm-hmm. And there's this long pause, and then she says, yeah, we handle peanuts <laughs> and Garfield oh, wow. <laughs> and dozens of others. Yeah, yeah. And when she got to the, you know, about the 10th name on the list, uh, as I like to say, I realized my negotiating position had been compromised because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. <laughs> I actually asked her for references. She was, she was the most important person in the entire cartooning universe. That's her name was Sarah Gillespie. Yeah. Now, what I didn't know is that she was uh, identifying herself by the parent company the corporate parent and not oh. the syndication company, okay. which, whose name I would have recognized. So I said, hell yes, signed a contract. Now, you still have to perform, so just signing a contract doesn't mean you'll ever be in newspapers. You have to work with them for a long time. Then they start selling it to newspapers, and even then, doesn't guarantee anybody's going to buy it or run it. Sure. So it took several years and the introduction of email, really, to make a difference because once I started putting my email address in the panels between the strip, uh, people would email me and say, hey, we kind of like your comic, but when he's in the office, which didn't happen much at that time, mm-hmm. we really love it. Okay. And everybody said that. It was just universally true. They, we love him in the office. We don't like it so much otherwise. Okay. So the, the first couple, the first couple ones, because obviously when I think Dilbert, I always think of him in the office. So what were the, initial cartoons like with him out of the office? Do you remember what the ideas and concepts were? Yeah, it was mostly uh, a nerd who had no social graces and was not successful dating. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was sort of autobiographical a little bit, <laughs> more, more than I like to admit. Because, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, that was an element of my personality, very nerdy. You know, I was teaching myself to be a programmer. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my uh, social skills were almost zero. And uh, so it was based on that. And he had a dog who was sarcastic. And they would do, you know, they would be visited by aliens. It was just whatever I wanted. Okay. Very unfocused. Okay. So, yeah, carry on. Um, so you were saying they, they liked him outside the office but loved him in the office. So Right. So be- because I worked with the earliest versions of email in my day job, uh, I knew what it was about. I knew how to use it. And at the time, very few people had email. So when I put it in the strip, it became sort of a national phenomenon mm. that a cartoonist would put his email in a public place. <laughs> now, it right. sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Like, yeah, yeah. you know, when you look back and, and people thought that I would be kicked out in newspapers for advertising because ah. that, that's how primitive things were. They're like, if you put your email in there, that's like you're advertising. We don't pay you to advertise. Mm. So but, uh, oddly enough, I never could have done that the simple thing of just putting my email in the strip 
if I had not been unsuccessful already. In other words, the syndicate was like, well, you know, it's not going anywhere anyway. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing to lose. Yeah. You know, peanuts isn't going to do it. Uh-huh. You know, eventually everybody was on social media, but, but at the time it seemed risky, as funny as that sounds. So I could take a risk that other people couldn't simply because, you know, I didn't have anything to lose. So that's when uh, people would write to me, and, and it sounds also hilarious from today's perspective. Uh, at least half of my email was people saying, I just got email and I don't know anybody else who has email. So, <laughs> so I'm going to send a message to you and see if I get a response. Yeah. And I would get thousands a day, thousands a day. And that's when Dilbert was not even that well known. Sure. And, you know, again, they were, also, they were so consistent about what they wanted. They wanted him in the office. They liked it when his boss was dumb. And so I just moved it. I moved it because my background is not art where I might say, no, no, you must go with my vision. Mm. My vision is Dilbert the generic. Mm. You know, I, I was a business economics guy with an MBA. I looked at that and said, okay, who's the customer? Mm-hmm. I'm the only cartoonist who's ever opened a channel to the customer. Think about that. Until that moment, no cartoonist ever interacted with his audience. <laughs> it was always okay, through the yeah. newspaper, through the syndication company, sure. and maybe they tell you, maybe they don't. Yeah. But I yeah. had this direct channel, thousands of messages a day. And so I thought, well, what did I learn in business school? The customer just told me what the product is. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you can tell the customer what the product is. You know, sure. Steve Jobs was good at that. You want this phone. <laughs> I didn't know that, but I guess I do. I do now. But yeah. That's the exception, right? Mostly the customer tells you what they want and you do your best to give it to them. So that's what I did. And that turned out to be a huge turning point. And, and Dilbert got a little lucky because there was a lot of downsizing in the nineties and they needed a face to put on it. They, the media. Mm-hmm. And so Dilbert ended up on a lot of magazine covers and just got tons of attention and, and grew from there. Wow. So what was the, what was the point where you, realized you were successful what was it what was the time when it went from being you know this guy who's struggling trying all these different things wants to be a cartoonist trying to do this trying to do that what was there a particular moment where it just kind of sparked in your brain like so wow uh, you know it's funny because uh, i always joke that there there's never any champagne moment okay you know there's never a moment we say this is it i made it yeah um, because even even getting the contract didn't mean I would be in newspapers. Mm-hmm. Being in newspapers didn't mean anybody would read it. Mm-hmm. So every time I, w- I would get the champagne, and I'd be like, yeah, I'll be hold off on this. And it wasn't until um, I was asked to write a book, because I wrote, the Wall Street Journal asked me to write an article mm-hmm. that would just be sort of a Dilberty kind of article. And I'd never written an article for a newspaper, but... It, of course, it's, my, it's part of my process. I say yes. <laughs> I, you know, how would you like to write an article for the most prestigious publication in the United States? Do it. Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what's, the, what's the worst that could happen? Yeah. It's bad. Yeah. That, I mean, there's no of, downside, really. Yeah, that's kind of how I've felt for the, the past six months. Just, uh, I've just kind of been saying yes to, yes to every opportunity that comes my way podcast interview tv appearance whether or not i i know i know all the ins and outs of the thing i'm just like yep let's go let's do it let's do it but by the way i once spent a year of my life saying yes to everything just to see what would happen (laughs) 
Now, you end up doing a whole bunch of things you really, really don't want to do. Yeah. Some of them turn out to be pretty good. Yeah. You know, you're like, oh, I was surprised. I didn't know I'd enjoy this. But a lot of them turn out to be things, well, you knew you didn't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. It goes both ways. Exactly. I, I think the upside is better, though. So I'm, I'm definitely on your, your side of say yes, unless there's some ridiculous reason not to say yes. Yeah. So I said yes to the article, and that caused a publisher to say, hey, could you turn that into a book? Now, I'd never even taken a writing class, except for a business writing class. But of course, I said, sure. <laughs> How hard could that be? I'll write a book. Yeah. I've never done anything like that. So I wrote a book, and it turned out to be The Dilbert Principle, and it went up to number two on the bestseller list, New York Times bestseller list uh, for nonfiction, and just sat there at number two. Okay. And I would tell myself every day, week after week, when the new list came out, I'd say, all right, two's pretty good. Two's pretty good. If I never go higher than two, I, I'm going to be pretty happy. Number two. Number one was uh, Dennis Rodman's book. Bad as you want to be about that is life. And it just sat there at number one. And then one day after, I forget how many weeks, but it felt like it was most of the summer. Uh, I got a call from my publisher and my publisher said, I got some news for you because they get the information about the bestseller before the public does. Because mm -hmm. the next bestseller list, you're the number one author in the world. Wow for the United States, for the, for the nonfiction, which is a pretty big category. And I got to tell you that that was one of the finest moments of my life. Wow. Because when you're a number one bestseller for even one minute, mm -hmm. they can't take it away from you. Yeah, you're always that guy. It's like mm -hmm. winning a Nobel Prize. doesn't matter what you do after that. You're always the Nobel Prize winner. That's true. And I would say that was a moment when I felt successful. And that was a champagne moment. You know, I don't drink, but it would have been a champagne <laughs> moment. Uh, I think I did back then. Yeah. And then there have been a few others that kind of blew my mind. <laughs> and more recently, a year ago, the president, President Trump, asked me to visit him in the Oval Office. Nice. Uh, just because I, I say a lot about politics and I talk about his skill set for persuasion. Mm -hmm. And that was such a freaky experience <laughs> that nothing's ever going to compare to that. There's, there's nothing I'll ever do yeah. except maybe this podcast <laughs> that will ever be as fun and interesting and wild and unexpected and just cool on every way things can be cool. Yeah. Um, it, it was like a conversation with somebody you know because yeah, sure. you know, his personality is really easy to, to click with. And I guess I sat there in the Oval Office thinking, okay, now I think I'm doing okay. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I, I knew it was summer, right? Yeah. That's so awesome. th those were my big moments, I guess. That's dope. I, was in the, I got invited to the White House a couple of weeks ago, but I didn't, I didn't get to meet the president. I did see the wow. Oval Office. I got the tour of the West Wing, but uh, the, the, the man himself wasn't, wasn't there. So. But it was a big honor being invited in the first place. So that that, that's huge. Yes. Yeah. As a, you know, as an independent rapper from the UK. So, you know, we'll see where it all goes. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool, man. It's been great to get that past story because I, I hadn't heard a lot of that stuff before I was, I was not aware of. Um, it's interesting because you're someone who's, I've been familiar with your work for decades, but 
it's only in the past couple of years where I've become more familiar with you as a person and your sort of general ideas and persona and everything like that. I mean, I mean, I think even 10 years ago, if someone said Scott Adams, I probably, I would have known the name. Oh yeah, that's the guy who made Dilbert, but I probably wouldn't even have been able to put a face to the name. Right. Just like, um, who was it you said before? Was it Charles, Charles Schultz, the creator Charles of Peanuts, right? But I don't actually know what he looks like. You know what I mean? Like I, I know the name, but I could walk past him in the street. Uh, you know, I, like I could see a picture and I'd be like, I don't know who that is. Like I know the name, I know the art, but I don't know the person. But with you, uh, in the past, I, I have to tell you, there, there are different kinds of famous. Yeah. Cartoon famous, probably one of the best mm. because I would be invisible in public, mm. but I was still famous. So yeah. I, I get all the benefits of being famous with none of the, <laughs> none of the costs. I could yeah. still, you know, I, I could still go to CVS and buy my, <laughs> buy my vitamins and nobody bothers me. Yeah. But since I've been doing a lot of periscoping and doing a lot of TV stuff with politics, pretty much everywhere I go now, somebody, somebody says, hey, hey, are you that guy? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, it's still fine. I mean, I don't mind it one bit, but you know, it's different. That's awesome, man. So, how did you get into the political world? How did that start to happen? Was it? Do you have any real interest and voice in it prior to the 2016 election and the lead up to it, or was it in that moment when you started to really get into that world? Completely accidental. I, I'd made some comments in past blogs about politics, but never really, you know, I was just a tourist. Mm -hmm. uh, but when Trump started campaigning, and as soon as he started getting a little bit of purchase on the race, and that was early, it was 2015, I realized based on my hypnosis training and all of the things I'd learned about persuasion since then, that he was bringing a toolkit that nobody had ever seen before. Mm -hmm. And that it was so strong that I predicted in, in 2016, oh yeah, he's gonna win the whole thing. Because you know, normally you can't predict a presidential race or anything with that many variables. But what I saw was somebody bringing a flamethrower to a stick fight. <laughs> and in that case, you can predict, right? There are some, some situations that are so unbalanced that you can predict. The thing that surprised me most is that it was close. Mm. You know, in the end, I thought, well, I'm surprised it's close. But of course, in America, people kind of vote their party no matter what. Yeah. So there's only, there's only a thin band of people who can be convinced in the yeah. end. I do. I have a question. See, this is, um, I mean, I, this is funny because I feel we, we are both rare in the regard that, I mean, in 2015, I live here in the UK. And in 2015, I had conversations both with close friends, family members, acquaintances, before Trump won the Republican nomination. And I remember, you know, I, remember, I clearly remember the stage when, when people were just laughing at him. The pundits on the news were just laughing at him. Everyone was saying, there's no way this is going to happen. This is a joke, whatever. And I remember being like the only person in my social circle who was like, I think you guys are really, really underestimating this guy's appeal and potential here. And people yeah. were literally just, just, just laughing at me. So as someone else who kind of saw it before it happened, why do you think the vast majority of people were totally unable to see it? Well, you know what I wonder is if people who have your similar background and experience, let's say somebody who's, you know, rapper, hip hop, I feel as if you did a survey of just that community, mm. you would find more people saw it coming than the average. 
and partly because uh, Trump is a walking performance. Mm. And, you know, when he says, I'm the greatest this or I'm the biggest that, probably, you know, you know if you're a rapper, you're also the biggest that, you're the yeah. greatest <laughs> that, you know, get everything. So on some level, I would think that he was very compatible with people who have the same experience. Mm. You know, I'm going to brag. Some people won't like it. Some people will like it. It's going to work. Yeah. Right. And he goes out there, he brags, you know, he, he violates the fact checking and it just <laughs> keeps working. Yeah. So I've got to, I've got to think like, imagine if you were to give advice to the earliest rappers, okay, do you mind some profanity on here? Um, I normally try to avoid it. If I, I will avoid it then. Yeah. Uh, imagine the first rapper before they've done their first thing yeah. and, they, and they go to smart people and they say, Hey, I got an idea. It's sort of like talking mm-hmm. and I'm going to use a lot of F bombs <laughs> and I'm going to talk about, you know, bad things about women. I'm going to say bad things about, you know, the gay community. I'm just going to be bad. I'm going to talk about shooting cops. How do you like my business plan? Mm. Who would have said, yeah, let's go with that business plan? That's fun. That Nobody. Nobody, right? So Trump comes, comes on the scene. He's like a, politi- <laughs> he's like a political rapper. Mm. All right? He's going to say the thing nobody can say. He's going to brag in a way nobody could brag. He's going to make claims that are bigger than you should make. He's going to do all of that. Yeah. But he's going to entertain the hell out of us. <laughs> We're going to be so entertained that people don't, didn't understand at the time the value of the show. Mm. If the show is good, you can get away with a lot. Yeah. I I say that in humor all the time. If you want to say something that's like a little edgy, you're provocative and you know, you know, people are going to complain about it. You can get away with it if it's really funny. Yeah. And that's the trick. So I don't know if you caught uh, Dave Chappelle's latest stand up special. I did, yes. Which I've talked about as not just one of the funniest things you'll ever see, but actually important. I agree. It, it actually transcended the art form mm-hmm. to become important. Yep. And, the, and the reason he could do that is because he's so funny. He can just do things you can't do because you can't get mad because you're laughing. Yeah. You go, okay, <laughs> I get it. That's for the laugh. I can separate what's for the laugh from what really matters. And then he, he's half serious, but he's not. He could get away with it because of talent. Trump has the same thing going for him, which is he gets away with all kinds of stuff because mm-hmm. he's still entertaining. And that yeah. matters. He knew that mattered. Other people didn't. Yeah. No, it's really interesting. And it's funny what you touched on with the whole rapper and hip hop thing, because I don't know how aware of this you are, but through the 90s and the thousands, I mean, prior to Trump running for president, he was really popular in the hip hop and rap world. There right. Are- there are right. a lot of rappers who have compared themselves to Trump, done, made Trump metaphors and similes, and he was, <laughs> he was always really popular in that world. I mean, it literally changed very rapidly when he actually became president. But prior to that, a lot of these artists who were cussing him and dissing him and bad-mouthing him on social media, a lot of them have lyrics which are very pro-Trump, which is, uh, which, which, again, it's, it shouldn't be surprising if you consider hip hop and, you know, some of the braggadocious nature and, you know, the things people rap about and the entrepreneurial value, you know, wanting to, the whole idea of going from, going from something to nothing, right? You had a lot of these artists coming out, even Jay-Z, Jay-Z had a lyric on his third album, something like, uh, he said something like, I'm the ghetto's equivalent to Trump, 
<laughs> you can see, you know, in the moves they make, all the entrepreneurs, it, it's, it's not that surprising to me. It's like, well, well, he's that guy. He's a brash New Yorker who kind of just speaks his mind and is abrasive and has this certain personality, which is, I, I feel this is the thing with Trump, right? I feel you've, you've got the people who just love him and love him. And even the people who hate him, I feel like they like, they enjoy hating him. Like they kind of love to hate him. It's a bit like, um, I, I often joke that US politics to me is like WWE for, for um, adults, which I yeah, think it is. Exactly. Right. You know, and it's like, you know, you'd have those characters in wrestling where people, they come out and everyone's booing and people are holding up signs and stuff, but it's still part of the, it's still part of the entertainment. So yeah, I, yeah. I don't like that guy. I feel like I hate him, but it keeps it all fun and entertaining. Now, someone could say they don't want that in politics. I can understand that. But certainly as a, as a, as a non-American, I can look from an outside and just kind of watch the show and laugh along with it. Yeah. He, uh, uh, here's, a, here's a mental experiment. If the Democrats didn't exist and, and there was nobody to tell you who Trump is and, and frame him in a negative way, if he simply was Trump and there was no counter argument, how popular would he be in the black community? Mm. I think he would be the most popular president <laughs> we've ever had. The, the, the reason he's not is because there, there's the counter narrative. He did this or that that he yeah. probably didn't do. He thinks this that he probably doesn't think. Mm. He's got these opinions that he probably doesn't have, mm -hmm. but they're very convincing. So oh, I, I hear know. a lot of that. Don't worry. I've, I've, I've faced a lot of, uh, a lot of backlash for, I wouldn't even say being a, a, a Trump supporter because I don't even classify myself as that. I just don't hate the guy and I think he's funny. So <laughs> just, just that alone, just me not hating him. I get, a, I get a lot of flack just for not being, just not going along with the flow and just saying he's horrible, he's terrible, impeach him. I'm just like, man, like, I mean, even since the time he's been elected, again, I'm not American, but I was in the States for nine weeks. Just, um, you know, I just came back two weeks ago. And based on most factors, I mean, I, he seems to be doing a decent job. Like I can, <laughs> I can, I can understand, you know, some people are like, Oh, but he tweeted this. Oh, but he said that I'm like, yeah, I, I get that. And I'm not saying I agree with absolutely everything the guy has ever said, or that I personally would have worded it that same way. But in the grand scheme of things, I'm like, well, he seems to be doing all right. And, and also, if he's that bad, why is it so hard to put up someone? I mean, you, you, should, you should be able to find 100 people who are better than him, right? If he's that bad, this is what I always think. If he's that terrible, because someone will go off, you know, I'll, I'll listen to someone and then I'll say, okay, well, tell me, tell me who's better. And they often draw a blank, right? I'll be like, okay, tell me of these Democratic nominees, you've got these 20 men and women here. Who do you think is significantly like it shouldn't be that hard to answer if he's that terrible that's the thing people are struggling to answer this and they, they still are they've had three years and i'm still kind of like well you know i can't predict the future but so so here, here's a funny framing for you when trump ran in the primaries to get the republican nomination people said that the field of republicans is the strongest field of candidates we've ever seen in our history wow. collectively in fact, every person on that stage could have been okay as a president, and he'd be all of them. Now he's running for re-election. What do people say about the entire Democratic field? 
It's the weakest we've ever seen. <laughs> and I don't know if it is. I don't know if it's weak. I think it just looks that way because of the comparison problem. Mm. And one of the things that uh, Mike Cernovich says that I swear I laugh about this once a day, <laughs> that Trump's critics have the luxury at this point in the election re-election process to imagine he's running against a strong candidate because whoever's in their mind is the person who has no flaws. Finally, we got a flawless candidate. Mm. And Mike likes to remind people that Trump will be running against an actual specific person. Yeah. <laughs> and that's all you need to know. As soon as it's one-on-one, -on -one, it's going to be devastation. It's yeah. going to be like, you know, uh, it's going to be like a tsunami of bad news <laughs> for that candidate. And, and then you, you do the mental process that you were just talking about. You, you go, okay, suppose it's Biden. Okay, yeah. slaughter. <laughs> suppose it's Bernie. Slaughter. Warren. Slaughter. And then you get down to people that even Democrats don't like that much. And once you get down to the fourth choice, they're, they're already making decisions like, well, I don't love this one, but yeah. so it looks to me like his reelection is basically, you know, in the bag, except for all the surprises that will happen between now and then. Yeah. Well, okay. I was, I was going to ask what your prediction for 2020 was, but uh, I think you've just given it. I, I feel the same. I feel like unless there's, unless something on either side or both side, like unless something really happens, some unpredictable event, some, some huge thing comes up, I'm struggling to see how and why he wouldn't be reelected, provided that, um, provided the Republican voters don't get to, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Complacent. Yes. Complacent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think as long yeah. as they go out and vote, then, and I was, again, I was just in the States and this is very anecdotal, but I met a lot of people who did not vote for him last time, but will this time. Uh, really? I, yes. Interesting. And I don't know how, I, I doubt they'd voice that publicly, but I had a lot, I met hundreds of people. I had a lot of conversations and as you know, all conversations do lead to Trump. So right. I, I did have people, a lot of people confide in me like, yeah, actually like, I, I think he's doing a lot better than I thought he would, or uh, yeah, uh, the uh, Democrats uh, are just going too far the other way and that kind of stuff. Let, let me give you my uh, conspiracy theory speculation. This is just for fun. Yeah. Uh, Trump has made the, the process of being involved in politics and being a supporter entertaining. True. So, so I think, first of all, his turnout is going to be high because people had quite a thrill the last time they voted for him mm -hmm. and, and they got their way unexpectedly. It was just a lot of fun. And people will do what they're rewarded for. Mm. Democrats went all th went through the whole process and voted and got nothing but the worst day of their life. Do, do you repeat the thing that didn't work yeah. and, and was a penalty? Or do you say, you know, I think I'm just not going to invest myself this much because I don't want that day again. Mm. Whereas Republicans are saying, well, let's have another one of those days. <laughs> it was so much fun. Yeah. We want to do this again. Yeah. I think he might have record turnout. But here's the, here's the part that's the fun part. The polls are not suggesting he's going to win because the polls say, these early polls say that, you know, every Democrat can beat him. But here's the speculation part. Republicans, I feel as if they're in on the joke. In other words, the presidency, while they like what he's doing, it's simultaneously the longest running prank on Democrats <laughs> that ever has been. And, and the Democrats don't get 
that the joke is that they don't get us a joke. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And, and here's my speculation. I think that when a Republican answers the phone and the pollster calls, and you know, there's, there's some thought that maybe they don't know it's private, and so they don't want to say they support Trump, or maybe they don't want the spouse to hear. There's some of that, mm -hmm. the, you know, the hidden Trump supporters. But I wonder if there's, if there's also now a new category where they're total Trump supporters, they don't have any problem saying it in their house, and they still say, no, I really like Bernie. <laughs> because it would be the greatest prank of all time to completely screw all the pollsters and just show up. Mm. It, would be, it would be just the greatest prank. And, <laughs> and if there's one thing that I've come to learn about the Republicans, they like a good prank. <laughs> they oh, yeah, like a good yeah. prank. So, you know, that's one of those unexpected variables that people might just go to the polls because it's so damn funny. Yeah, we will see. I mean, I, I have a theory on politics in general. This is just based on my observation, I guess, over the last maybe 15 years or so, both in the UK, US and other countries. But it seems to me like the side that is having the most fun tends to win. Yes. That's what, I, that's what I've observed. Whoever is having the most yes. fun tends to win. And it's very, very clear that uh, Republicans and conservatives right now are having way more fun than uh, the, the Democrats and, and, and liberals. I mean, I thought by now, I mean, three years in, I, I would have thought, okay, the emotions would have calmed down a little bit and people would be a little more reasonable and a little more <laughs> tolerant and whatever, but it's just been amped up and amped up and the yeah. level of anger and hostility and I mean, it's crazy. Like I can just, I can go on Twitter at any moment and just say anything, just even slightly, just slightly positive about Trump. And I just get inundated with just anger. And I'm just like, wow, you know, this is, uh, this is not, I, I don't know. I, I don't think you're going to win this one with, with anger. You're, <laughs> you're certainly not going to bring over. I mean, cause I, I would think, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to give a, give anyone advice, but I would have thought that given the time people have had to kind of regroup and look at what happened in 2016, I would have thought that, I mean, the goal should be to win over Trump voters, you see, but instead it seems to like, they've just done the opposite. Like you're just trying to totally demonize them, totally alienate them. And with everything like that, I'm like, man, like that's just going to make them vote Trump even, even harder because you're, you're not going to, you know, I, I joked in, um, I did Candace Owens' podcast some months ago, and I joked that in, um, in 2016, the strategy was to call 50% of the population racist, and that didn't work, so now their strategy is to call 80% of the population racist. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, I, I don't think that's going to win. That just alienates people. It, it, really, it really puts people off. And then some of the weird policy positions and just the... Um, yeah, I don't know. And then all this, all this impeachment nonsense and the whole Russiagate nonsense. And there's just so many things that have happened in a relatively short period where I'm just like, man, this is not, this is not looking good. Like if, if I were like a reasonable, if I were a reasonable Democrat voter, I would be very, very, very frustrated right now. Um, I'm not, I don't have a dog in the fight. But if I were, I would just be like, what? I mean, even Obama is weighing in on it now. Even Obama is like, <laughs> yeah <laughs> he's wording it in a politically correct way but i'm sure when he's like you know in private having conversations he's like man what is <laughs> what, what, are they, what are they doing do they not want to win 
Um, and, and you've seen people now criticizing, you know, I, I said the other day, I wonder when they're going to cancel Obama because he came out the first time and, you know, what, what was the first thing he said? He was basically talking about not demonizing the opposition. Right. And then I saw some magazine publish something talking about Obama's boomer response to can- oh, oh, yeah. oh, man. He came down on cancel culture, right? He was saying, you know, this cancel culture, this, he even used the word woke. He said, this woke stuff isn't, isn't going to work. And instead of going, Hmm, maybe he's got a point. People were just like, nah, like Obama's a boomer now. Like whatever, what does he know? And then another thing happened. He came out and he said, um, I can't remember. There was something he said like in the, in the last, Oh yeah. He's, he was saying that, uh, some of the Democrat policies were too far left. And then you started seeing the hashtag too far left trending on Twitter and people were just doubling down even harder. And I was just like, man, like this is not gonna, this is not gonna, gonna go well. Well, uh, well, well, one of the things that uh, I always look to to predict is that uh, older voters don't like risk. Mm. But if everything's broken, then people will say, well, it's all broken. We got to accept some risk to fix it. Mm -hmm. But when your economy is screaming and you're not at war, older voters don't want to break that. And, and what Warren and Biden are promising is, yeah, we, we have this better idea for the world, and maybe it even is. But to get there, you have to break the thing that's working really, really well. Mm. <laughs> People don't like to break stuff that isn't broken, especially if, if you're depending on your retirement. Yeah. So I, I don't think they have a chance with that message. Yeah. But, so, you know, Obama's <laughs> right. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your, your new book, Loser Think. I haven't yet had a chance to read it. Um, I read your last one, Win Bigly, which was really interesting, especially from a psychological perspective and touching on some of the sort of social commentary, political commentary we've been discussing. So tell us a little bit more about what lo- Loser Think is. What's the concept for the book? So Loser Think is a word I made up and it has to do with the fact that uh, I noticed, especially on Twitter, when people would disagree with me, but they would have a pretty good point, I would click on their profile to find out like, what's, what's up with this person. And it would often be a lawyer, an economist, maybe sometimes a scientist. Mm-hmm. And then people would have just crazy opinions that looked like they had never learned to think. Now click on the profile and it would be, excuse me, musician, <laughs> uh, <laughs> artist, you know, poet. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm quick to say, that there, there are lots of different forms of genius. Mm. So you could be a musical genius without being an economist. You can be an economist and not be able to hold the tune. So I'm not, I'm not picking favorites. I'm just saying that your experience across domains may leave you with some, some uh, empty spots in your thinking. Mm-hmm. Things that an economist have, maybe the poet doesn't. So loser think is not about the person. I'm not calling anybody a loser because I make all these mistakes myself and frequently, but there are things that we sort of lazily use as replacements for thinking. And I try to point those out so you can avoid them more easily by telling you the, the main thinking styles from different domains. Okay. And what are, what are those? Well, I'll give you some examples. And the beauty is that you can learn them immediately just by hearing them once. Mm -hmm. So I like to use the example of sunk costs. If you're an economist, you know what that means. It means that if you've already spent money on something and it's gone and you can't get it back, it should not be part of your future decisions. Mm -hmm. If I've already put a bunch of money into this, I better keep investing because I don't want to lose the money I already spent. 
but that's not rational because the money you already spent can't come back. It's gone. There's no, no discounts. So the economist knows that. And now if, for anybody watching this, if it's the first time they've ever heard that, there's something that just clicked in their mind and they go, huh, that actually makes sense. Mm -hmm. But you've learned it now. It's something you'll know forever, just hearing it once. There are a few more examples. If you look in the news, especially the political news, it's full of people saying, so-and-so must be punished because I know what they're thinking. They have bad intentions. Mm -hmm. they're, they're really on the inside, they have bad thoughts. They hate me. They're, they're doing this for personal gain. We are terrible at reading minds. And I offer as proof every relationship you've ever been in. <laughs> you know, even the people who know you best can't, you know, Christina, my girlfriend, she can't tell if I'm in a good mood or I'm thinking of my next tweet. Yeah. It, it all looks the same. Yeah. Are you in a good mood, a bad mood? Are you thinking, you know, nobody, even, even the people you know best, they don't know what you're thinking. No. They just know what you're doing most of the time. So if you do that with a stranger in politics, I know what he's thinking. Mm. Well, maybe, but you should reduce your, your uh, confidence about that. Yeah. Here's another example. People use analogies as if they can predict. So it's one thing to be reminded of something and say, oh, yeah, that reminds me of a thing that happened before or a different thing. But you can't say that just because your cat has a marking on its snout that looks like Hitler's mustache, <laughs> that your cat will therefore invade Poland. Like, analogies <laughs> don't work that way. Yeah. They don't work for predicting. They're really good for explaining something for the first time. Mm -hmm. If I wanted to tell you what a, a zebra was and you already knew what a horse was, I'd say, oh, that's a horse with stripes. You're like, oh, okay, got it. Yeah. But they don't predict anything. It doesn't predict your horse will be in a zoo. None of it predicts. And you see that all the time. So those are just a few quick examples. The book is full of little ones like that. And again, you can see that you just hear it once and, you, and it becomes automatically incorporated in your future thinking. I gotcha. Yeah. I mean, Twitter, Twitter is a very weird world in a lot of ways, but it's very, if you use it correctly, it's such a powerful tool on so many levels from just understanding human psychology to seeing how a range of different people think and to networking and the ability to, you know, we, we connected on this podcast via Twitter, just like I do with most of my guests. And it's, it's such an interesting tool. And one thing I find it, it's kind of an exaggeration of human behavior in a lot of ways. Right. So a lot of people say stuff like, you know, everyone's there people are their worst on Twitter or people are worse on Twitter than they are in real life. And that's true. But I feel like Twitter is just kind of an unfiltered view into what people are truly, truly like deep down. And uh, you touched on one thing there earlier, which is something that I've noticed and I comment on quite a bit, which is this desire of people to attribute bad motive to other people it, very, very, very quickly, right? You can just put out any opinion out there and rather than someone contending with the idea or with the opinion or rebutting it, just coming up with this weird caricature of you, right? They, they see one, one 140, 280 character thing that you've said with no context. And from this, they just deduce all of these crazy ideas of what they think you believe and who you are and what you support and what you don't support. And 
everything yeah. like that. And it, it, it's really, really weird. So where do you think that comes from? Why, why do people do that? And why are they so quick to do it? Well, I'll tell you, I, I've been getting insulted in public even longer <laughs> than you have. And there's, there's this pattern which I noticed. It's so consistent. It might be maybe 100%, mm-hmm. something like that, but at least 95%. 95% of the people who believe they're debating me on Twitter, let's say, are not debating my opinion. Mm-hmm. They're debating their own distorted, misinformed version of it. Yeah. Now, in the old days, I would say, no, 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 that's not my opinion. <laughs> my opinion is this. And I would think, well, now they can deal with my actual opinion. They might mm-hmm. agree, they might disagree, but now they know my actual opinion. Mm-hmm. That worked exactly zero times over decades. Instead, they'll just hear the right opinion and reinterpret it wrong again forever. Like they'll, they'll never actually let you give your own opinion. Yeah. And what I found as a workaround for that, which I talk about in, in the book Loser Thing, is instead of restating your argument and having them you know, get it wrong again, ask them this question. I call it the magic question. Tell me something you think is true on this topic that you think I don't think is true. And, and you watch people try to do it, and they can't do it. And that's, that's, how, that's how they talk themselves into understanding that they didn't have your opinion right. Mm. Find me any place we disagree. What do you think is true that I don't think is true? And usually by about the third thing, they realize they just didn't understand your opinion, and that was the only problem. Oh, I like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that in the future for certain, because I, I get some bizarre ones where I'm just like, I've had ones, especially, um, I, I take it you saw my, my viral deadlift tweet earlier this year, where I, I did you see that? It's Maybe. Where, I, I, where I, I identified as a woman and I broke the British women's deadlift record. Oh, yeah. One of the things that brought, brought international attention to me. Um, uh-huh. right? And it, that thing went so far, like, you know, tens of millions of people ended up seeing that. It got television coverage, you know, podcast coverage, everything. And um, it was just fascinating to go even outside of Twitter on, it was on Reddit, it was on different forums, it was on, it was just trending everywhere. And it was just amazing to read all of these stories about me that I had never heard before. All these things about what I apparently believe, and the reason why I did it, it was so weird. It was like this crazy thing of Chinese whispers, where it ends up being, you know, this is, uh, he's done this because you know, obviously I'm just stating a point of why I think biological men competing against biological women is a bad idea in sports and exposing problems that will arise from it and are arising. But the way people just distorted it to me being uh, misogynistic and homophobic and I did it because I hate, I hate trans people. Or right. This right thing. And you're just like, where on earth did you get this all from? Like this, <laughs> this was a nine second video of me doing a deadlift with some funny <laughs> satirical commentary. And I'm like, oh, wow, when did I become all these things? I need to, I need to tell my gay friends, you know what I mean? Like, right. it, was just, it was just very, very bizarre. There, there's something about that topic is, is just, uh, you know, it's, it's matches and gasoline. I, I got in trouble myself for a, a very different view of that. Okay. Uh, there, there's some things I like to say in public just to make people think differently. Mm. And one of the things I would say is, why does it matter if a transgender athlete competes? Because in the end, you still have the same amount of winners and losers. Mm. And it's one of those things that, that makes you think, it's like, okay, but, and then people will argue back, but what about the, the person who was born a woman who would have been the winner? Mm. 
And I say, sports are not about winners. It's mostly about losers. You only have one winner. Everybody else is losing. So <laughs> sports is mostly about losing. Yeah. And you, you, you have two situations in which you have the same amount of winners and the same amount of losers, whether the transgender athlete was involved or not. Mm. So it sort of forces people into, uh, into the, the statement they don't want to make, which is there's something about women that is a special class. Sure. that they need to have their own a winner. Yeah. And what's, what's interesting about this, and the reason it makes you think, is that it's sort of a dated thought. Because when, when it was first true that boys were doing sports and, and girls were encouraged to be cheerleaders, that wasn't a great world, right? That, that needed to be changed. So laws change. You, you may be less familiar with our laws over here. But the, the girl athletes have to get the same amount as the boy athletes in high school, et cetera. And I, I think college title well. So, yeah, Title IX. Okay. So, but that's a historical thing that they needed to correct. But if you fast forward to today, mm-hmm. any, any young girl can play any sport she wants. You've got recreational leagues. You've got, you know, more, more rigorous leagues. Everybody has as much opportunity as they want. Mm-hmm. And in today's world, still have one winner. <laughs> the, 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 the fact that your winner happened to have an overwhelming advantage. And then I say, well, how do you think the number uh, 30, 30th best female tennis player feels when she plays Serena Williams? Yeah. How does she feel? Does she feel like, oh, this is fair? Yeah. No, because Serena Williams has massive talent mm-hmm. that goes beyond just the fact that she practiced a lot. She's got something about her that's a better athlete, as all better athletes do. So we don't live in a world where I can play in the NBA. I'm not complaining about it. Yeah. I, I, will, I have no chance of playing in the NBA. Yeah. Uh, guess, so the fact that some, there's some woman who doesn't get her first place trophy is very unfair for that one woman. Yeah, but somebody else got a trophy. <laughs> I think I think I, I think you know I'm I'm sure you're you're a smart guy. I'm sure you're aware that the obvious uh, counter and concern to this would be that no women whatsoever would be winning anything in sports besides maybe well, long distance swimming. Right, and then skating. and then the the logical um, where that would end up is that we would stop having different leagues, mm. which would be a better world. Because if everybody, if everybody just played in the league where their talent matches, mm-hmm. it wouldn't matter what your gender is, what you were born at. You would just be always playing somebody who's the right league. So would you, would you favor an approach where you just have different tiers? So I don't know, in basketball, the NBA is the top tier, and then you have a second tier all the way down to I don't know what. Would, would that be – is that kind of what, you, what you'd propose or what you think would make sense? Well, the reason people uh, watch sports from the spectator point of view is that they don't know who's going to win. Mm-hmm. You know, it's part of the fun is, is, is watching something competitive. So as long as it's competitive, mm. I don't think anybody's going to care. I mean, there was talk recently about there was, a, I think, a, a woman who was a professional soccer player who might get a tryout to be a kicker on an yeah. NFL team. Terrible idea. Well, no, I don't know if she'll get the job. Let's <laughs> yeah. we'll say she gets the job. Yeah. Is that unfair because now there's a man who otherwise would have been a kicker and he doesn't get the job? Mm. Well, yeah, but you still have the same amount of winners and losers. Yeah. It's, it's, an, it's, a, it's an interesting perspective. I, I can't say it's one I'd, uh, one I'd agree with. I certainly think the. Well, let, let, let me go further. But, 
Okay. I think organized sports may be more bad than good Ooh. because okay. for every, every person who gets to be on the starting team, there are all these people who didn't mm-hmm. and they're just reminded that they're not good and they get to sit on the bench and their parents go to the games and watch their kids sit on the bench. And I've, you know, I've watched that play out with my own, my own kids, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's fair. The sports are really good for the people who happen to be good at sports. Oh, sure. And I don't mind. I, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm rare in this regard that I, I don't have a problem with stuff being unfair. <laughs> maybe, like I, I just, I've, I was taught from a very, very young age. My parents used to, whenever I'd say, well, tell my parents but, unfair, they just so say, I agree with you, but to be consistent, I get you. Yeah. Throw the transgender in there if you want to, because mm-hmm. it's just another, another way that somebody else doesn't win which is the normal way of sports. Most people aren't winning most of the time. Yeah. Wouldn't that apply to pretty much everything in life, though, from careers to university to school grades to everything? Yeah, nothing's fair. And yeah. uh, my, my mother gave me the most valuable lesson I've ever learned. You know, we, we'd be kids and, you know, you, you do what kids do. Oh, my brother got an ice cream yesterday. Now I have to get an ice cream today yeah. to make it fair. And my mother would just look right at me and she'd say, life isn't fair. Yeah, I got the same. <laughs> that doesn't I got, care. I got you know, the same. I, and I don't believe there's ever been a more valuable lesson. Because, you know, part two of that is life isn't fair. Go make sure you're on the side that gets more. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, there's nothing stopping you from being on the side that's getting more. Mm. Go yeah, get to, it. Yeah, to me, fairness comes down to like, just, I feel like there's two different versions of fairness and opportunity. And especially if you're talking to more right-leaning people or more left-leaning people, this is something where people get confused because I think when people hear the words equality and fairness, different people hear different things. Really, there should be more than one word for each of those, right? So if someone's talking equality, equality, I mean, I, I think equality of opportunity. I think not having rules or laws which are clearly discriminatory against certain individuals or groups or something like that, right? That doesn't mean that, so there's two ways you can look at it, right? Using your example, in one, in one of those definitions, it's unfair that neither of us, of us can play in the NBA. But it's fair because the NBA doesn't have a specific rule saying that Scott Adams or Zuby or people under this particular height or whatever are not allowed to be play in the NBA. Technically, you could be four foot seven, and if you were good enough, you could be in the NBA. It's just that, you know, we haven't yet found that guy or girl who's four foot right. seven and who can compete with the guys in the NBA. Yeah. So you've got the issue of uh, equality of outcomes versus equality of, you know, the system. Yeah. And the conservatives uh, have the most defensible view of that, I think. And I don't identify as conservative. Sure. But the conservatives say it's, you know, you follow the Constitution, you follow the law. We're okay with that because you can't get as you can't get fair outcomes, but you can at least make sure we're playing by the same rules. That's the best you can do, and we're not going to defend anything beyond that because that's the best you can do. Whereas um, people on the left tend to be more about how can we get closer to equal outcomes. Yeah, and there, there's no practical way to do that that anybody's invented. No, you can right. do it in in pockets yeah. in special cases. And then I would, I would also extend what you said. You're talking about uh, equal opportunity. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think past that to the next level. I'm going to make this 2019 worthy. Okay. And by the way, I've never said this before. 
So you'll be the first person to hear this thought. Awesome. So, you know, knock it down if you don't like it. <laughs> we, it's the most productive thing to think in terms of uh, equality of strategies, mm -hmm. meaning that my strategy for success could be different than your strategy for success. And maybe I don't have access to yours, but let's say I, I decided to enter exactly your business. Mm -hmm. Would I be a successful hip hop guy? Probably not. I mean, you know, there, there, there's a certain expectation that I've got to look a certain way, be a certain kind of person. So I don't really have that option. But was there anything stopping me from being a cartoonist? Nothing. Yep. So you had a strategy that could work for you. I had a strategy that worked for me. I call that fair because mm -hmm. we at least had equality of, of a strategy, even though I couldn't do what you do. You know, you could probably do what I do, but that wasn't the best example. So as long as everybody's got some path, Mm -hmm. that's just as good equality of strategy is probably the best you can do yeah what's the so i i understand that clearly what's the difference between equality of opportunity and equality of strategy as you've laid it out there because they sound so similar we, to me so we don't have equality of opportunity like okay. you said i can't can't play in the nba because i'm not okay. tall enough it would be difficult for me to be eminem and be the you know the other white rapper <laughs> it would just be hard for me to do that but i have all these other things i can do and yeah. earlier in the podcast when i was talking about i had two corporate careers that ended because it wouldn't work for me because i was white and male and they told me that directly those companies were starving for minority women you know to to improve their diversity mm -hmm. so that's that's a uh, access to something that I didn't have that is available to other people, but that's okay because I have my own strategies that work great for me. So okay, as long as we've all got strategies mm. and they're all perfectly good ones, does it matter that you have eight of them and I have 10 of them? Mm -hmm. Well, mathematically it's different, but you've got eight ways to win and they're all available to you. I've got 10 ways. What's mm -hmm. the difference? We both picked one. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes sense to me. I mean, I think this is the, this is the thing. I mean, maybe this is why I've, I've never, you know, a, a lot of this, some of the concepts on the left don't make sense to me because with take something like equality of outcome, right? I find myself often having to, especially being in a, being a musician, being in entertainment, which is very, very left leaning. And you have all these, um, you know, they have things like trying to make festivals, 50, 50 gender split and trying to make everything 50, 50 and whatever, which is totally ludicrous, especially in a world like hip hop, which is like 98% male dominated. I don't know why yeah. you'd expect if you put in 98, if you put in 98 to two inputs, I don't know why you'd expect 50, 50 outputs, right? Just basically right. logically. Um, and, but a lot of times I'm one of the few people who does is, is sort of challenges some of these ideas and stuff. Like people put it out there. We want to make it 50, 50 and everyone kind of cheers. And I'm the one going, wait, hang, hang on. Firstly, why, firstly, why? And secondly, more importantly, how? because you can't do that without actually right. really discriminating against people. And also it, it cuts against the whole idea of freedom because you can't have both freedom and equality of outcome because we've already accepted people are diverse. People are different. People have different skills, abilities, mentally, physically, emotionally, everything, which is wonderful. Like that's what makes the world interesting. We're not just, we're not just clones, but by that same note, just like I've got four siblings, Okay, all raised by the same parents, similar circumstances. One of us is a doctor. One of us is a rapper. 
one of us works for an investment bank, one of us works in PR, and one of us works for an NGO, right? So you, just, got, a, you got a smarter family there. Thank you. But just, just like just within that family, you've got totally different, totally different outcomes there. So yeah. when people are talking about creating equality of, of outcome across anything, I'm like, well, you can't give people both the freedom to choose what they want to do. As you were saying with your equality of strategy, you can't let people, people can't be both free. And then you're also expecting all of the scenarios to sort of line up exactly, you know? And it's weird because people, people get this on one hand, but then they also, there's this weird cognitive dissonance where they get it, but they also don't get it. So sometimes <laughs> I'll, I'll use an example like, uh, you know, if someone's talking about equality of outcome, I'll be like, okay, so is the, especially when people start putting it down to things like racism and sexism and everything like that. I'm like, okay, so uh, black people make up, black men make up 7% of the American population. Okay. But they make up, I don't know, I don't know the number, 70, 70 to 75% of the NBA, right? Or 90% of the people who are doing the hundred meter sprint. Is that because, is that a sign of some kind of racism or, and people, and people are like, no, of course not. So I'm like, well, so why are you applying that same logic to everything else? Because we know that people are different. And it is true that different cultures and different nations and people in different places do get drawn into different things. You're, you're going to struggle to find an African professional swimmer or ice skater or skier. Like it's just, it's going to happen. But then you'll find people from places like Jamaica. Oh, like they've got, they're massively overrepresented in sprinting. People from Kenya, massively overrepresented in uh, long distance running. People from the Nordic countries, very overrepresented in strongman and powerlifting events, right? So, so it's weird, like people see it, but at the same time, they, they don't. And I've, I've never really understood why. So, I, I, I sometimes put, frame this in terms of having the right tool for the job. So the, the bigger the, the problem, the, the more brutal your tool needs to be. So if you go back to American slavery, you needed a civil war, like the biggest possible tool. Mm. Then you still didn't have anything like real freedom, so you needed the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. you know, it's smaller than a civil war, but really big. Then we got laws that you know, made everything legal, but the laws were not being applied. Mm -hmm. So then you've got the legal system comes in, a little bit smaller because it's, you know, case by case. And that does a good job. And then you, you come to today where you've got, let's say, this institutional racism, which, I, you know, I think exists. You, know, you, you, could, you could make your argument that there's plenty of it. But what is the right tool? Because the legal system kind of doesn't work for the institutional sort of subtle bias and stuff like that. The, the right tool is probably understanding that everybody has a strategy now, that everybody can succeed, it just won't look the same. Because mm -hmm. your point, people will choose different strategies, but do you have one? Yeah. Is there a strategy that will work? Well, yeah. You know, it turns out that being poor is a big advantage in getting student aid. Sure. You know? So you've got a strategy. Yeah. And you know, I, I think that if we start thinking of it in terms of equality of strategy, we're maybe that's a better tool for the job than saying, why aren't there 50% women at, at this festival? Yeah. One more point on that is that I was just thinking here. One thing that also makes it silly is people only want that in certain fields. 
<laughs> I've never heard anyone advocate for 50-50 women con construction workers or lumberjacks or electricians or plumbers or anything like that. It's only certain types of jobs where people are like, hang on, how come yeah. this is not 50-50? And I'm like, well... <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'd like to see the occupational death rates be more... <laughs> More balanced. Yeah. It's, so it's, like, it's, like, it's like 10 to 1 now, isn't it? You know, yeah, of, of getting killed on the job. I think it's but then, but then women say, you know, it's less safe walking down the street, which it is. Yeah. So, I mean, we don't live in a fair world. We, no, man. Uh, that, we that's live in a world where you can pick a good strategy, but that's it. Uh, that's how simple it is for me. I'm like, look, I get it. Like, if someone can say there's, oh, well, there's, there's male privilege. You don't get this. Because I'm like, okay, I accept that there's male privilege, but... I only accept it as long as you accept that there's female privilege because, I mean, if women died five years earlier than men did on average, we would never hear the end of it. <laughs> right? Uh, well, you, you, never you, if, if you really want to get in trouble, <laughs> well, uh, let, me give, let me give you a provocative thought. I've tried tossing this out a few times and the room gets really quiet. <laughs> it goes like this. Uh, yes, men earn the most money. Who spends the most? Because yes. if you had two choices, one, you're the person who earns it, mm -hmm. or two, you're the person who decides how it's spent. Mm -hmm. I don't know. A lot of people would say, <laughs> I think I'd rather be deciding how it's spent. Yeah. And to your point about the life expectancy, uh, on average, if you're a man and you make your own billion dollars, the likely place that's going to go at the end of your life <laughs> It's to your wife. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and, and then now she's got a billion dollars. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm you know, not putting any value on it. I'm just saying that looking at who's earning the most is ignoring a slightly more important point. Mm -hmm. Who gets to spend the most? Yeah. Take a marriage. The guys, let's say the guy is working you know, in some traditional classical family and, and the mother is staying home and taking care of the kids. Mm -hmm. Two of them are perfectly happy with that situation, let's say. <clears throat> on, on paper, the man is earning all the money. Mm -hmm. Who gets to decide what are the birthday presents, the Christmas presents, who decides if the kitchen gets remodeled, who decides mm -hmm. which car you buy? Well, it's a little both. Yeah. But, you know, it's a little bit more the woman has a lot of control over those expenses. I would say just anecdotally, yeah. women have more influence over even the house you buy, you know, a lot of decisions are very... Yeah, that, that's not anecdotal. I mean, there's, there's data on that. There's data on that, which does back it up. And then also, yeah. I mean, and the, yeah. And then also, I mean, it's like, well, why is money the only thing you're looking at? I mean, why not? How much time do you get to spend with your kids? How much free time do you have? How much time do you have for your hobbies? I mean, why is money the, the only factor that's being looked at here? I mean, I can't remember what book I was reading, but something like 90% of men in the UK would, you know, surveyed said they would like to spend more time with their children and their families. And so it's like, well, money's not, especially from the people who are like, you know, say stuff like money's not everything. Don't focus on money. And so, but then when it comes to this particular issue, it's like, wait, what, hang on. Why is money the only, only yeah. factor here? Right. There's lots of other things. What about hell? I don't know. Yeah. We, we tend to default to things which are easily easy to measure. Yeah. So uh, we always put more importance on things that are easy to measure, whether that makes sense or not, because, yeah. well, we can measure this. Yeah, we can measure time spent with family. We can measure time spent doing hobbies. Well, yeah, then there's the quality <laughs> of the time. You know, a dollar is a dollar, 
Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, if the time you're spending with your family is, I don't know, watching them play a sport while they're on the field and you're sitting there in your little, uh, little folded chair, mm. I don't know, is that the same? Some people, as, call, some people call that unpaid labor now. Have you seen that? But, by the way, if you really want a provocative thought, <laughs> I'll just put them all out here. Yeah, do it, do it. <laughs> uh, I don't know if there's any more destructive thing than uh, the nuclear family. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. And now I'm now I'm curious. Now you're interested. Yeah. Let me put it this way. Okay. A good parent, let's say two good parents, or even just one good parent, is a great deal. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you've got great, if you've got two good parents, good luck. I mean, you you've got a good situation there. Yeah. But we don't live in a world where people are necessarily all as good as stuff. Some people are bad parents. There, you have your drug addicts, your people who don't want to work. Every, every men are a problem. Mm-hmm. I believe the kids in all of those situations would have been better off being sent off to, you know, British boarding school or something <laughs> and, and, and at least have the experience of adults who are professionals. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they're, they're trained. Yeah. They know how to be good role models and, you know, you've got experience with your other kids and you learn something and you don't have to wake up every morning and get, you know, beaten or raped by your parent, which yeah. is... Not that unnormal, abnormal. Yeah, I think, I think, yeah, I think, I think if it's that extreme, if the parents are that bad, then. Um, right. But the, but then you take it down. Okay, take it down to normal people. Yeah. Uh, how many people have two parents that are both really good? Me. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I would say my situation was be- better than most. You know, yeah. my parents were together the whole time and supportive, etc. Mm-hmm. But. I think there are, there have to be more people who are being hurt by bad parenting than there are people who got lucky because they got at least one good parent. Hmm. I think if you did the math, you'd find out. Do you mean uh, you'd be surprised? Do you think that applies to just the just the modern Western world? Because I don't think that's. Um, I certainly don't think that's global. I mean, if I look at uh, my so. My main three countries that I've had plenty of exposure to, or four really, are UK, Saudi Arabia, Nigeria, and America to a degree. And certainly in Nigeria and in Saudi, I think that, you know, certainly having two parents and stuff being relatively stable is is the norm there. Yeah, you know, um, if you could make it happen where everybody gets two good parents, mm. I would vote for that too, but we sort of live in the real world where people just aren't as good as other people at anything, mm. and parenting is just one of them. Then the the other thing that people often overlook is that by the time a kid reaches about twelve, at least where I live, mm-hmm. you know, it's a California thing, maybe the parents become almost irrelevant except for driving them back and forth. <laughs> I, think that's they, Calif- I think that's California. Yeah, they they are effectively raised by school system and their friends. Oh boy! And and parents are just there to provide you know food and you can try punishing them and that makes a difference, right? Mm-hmm. If you if you take away their privileges and stuff, mm-hmm. but it doesn't make that much difference. In my experience, you know, like you said, your your four siblings went in four different directions, and that's common. People yeah. kind of go in the direction they're going to go. And I just don't know that the parental connection is that important after about the age of 12, 13. Wow. People just go off and, and find their own way after that. That's interesting. I, I, w- I, would, I would definitely disagree on that one, personally. 
but it's an interesting concept. I, I, I think there's room for disagreement on yeah. this. Uh, I, <laughs> yeah. will, I will allow that. <laughs> yeah, it's, cer- it's certainly not been uh, my own experience or that of... But, but you would agree with the basic premise that, let's, let's keep it simple, if you had mm-hmm. two terrible parents, mm-hmm. is that kid better staying? You know, let's say he's getting beaten and raped. Oh, gosh, no, no, well... Right. Yeah, so, no. so, on, so on the extremes, yeah. you would agree that bad parenting is, is worse than if the kid just went in a different situation. Yeah, if it's abusive, if, if it's to the stage where, you know, child protection agencies need to, need to step in and uh, now, remove the, the children, then... Now, now let, me, let me move the example a little bit closer to the middle. Okay. Suppose you've got two parents that are not bad, they're not hurting anything, mm-hmm. but they're not especially warm. You know, they're not especially loving and they don't know how to tell you how to succeed. Mm-hmm. And they're, let's say they're not good disciplinarians. So yeah. you end up, you know, just sort of going your own way. Is that better or worse than if that same kid was in a really capable, let's say, a boarding school situation where they did learn success and they, they made contacts and, you know, they, they learned how to do it? So, and you don't even need to answer the question. Okay. <laughs> But, but you can see how you very quickly get into gray area. Yeah. Uh, and then I would agree with you that on the far right, mm-hmm. two good parents who know what they're doing and care and love, well, that's the, the ideal situation. It's just yeah. hard to get to it. I think, I think beyond the extreme, it's, it's not very gray to me personally. I think, I think if, you're, if you're going to the stage of, you know, there actually being abuse, like physical abuse and crimes being committed against the child, then yeah, that's certainly where a third party needs to, needs to step in. Um, if it's just, you know, parents who aren't great, then, um, well, firstly, I absolutely would not trust the government or probably any other, <laughs> any other, uh, party to kind of, kind of make that decision that, uh, that stuff. Nor sound... would I. Yeah. yeah. Would, <laughs> I, I wouldn't trust someone else to make that decision. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah that, that, that kind of concerns. And then, uh, and then I'd also say that they're not mutually exclusive. I mean, the, the kid may still be better off going to a, a charter school or a boarding school or something like that, but then they can also go back to their parents during the holidays and have have both of those things so yeah i think um yeah i think unless parents are like literally criminal and abusive then the idea of any other third party kind of stepping in and trying to fill in that role uh, that that well, concern if, that concerns me a lot more than uh what, what about the the narrow example of where the parents don't know how to tell a kid how to succeed but I think another I, environment could. No, I think I think no, that's fine. I mean, I I don't give much when it comes to. Um, I think parents absolutely need to make the decisions when it comes to their kids, even if even if their parents do teach the kids some of the wrong stuff, or they don't. The parents themselves aren't necessarily successful and don't know how to teach success or financial management, anything like that, which is not uncommon. Um, but you know. Ultimately, it's. Uh, but it'd be yeah, nice to have a choice, wouldn't it? Well, I think you can. I think you can do both. I mean, I think I certainly have um, a lot of issues with the current education system, and there's things that I think are taught that shouldn't be taught, and I think there's plenty of things that should be taught that are not. So I'd certainly be up to uh, changing that because I think it's very outdated in a lot of ways. I think it's kind of. I think that a lot of the school system is kind of still designed around the idea of getting people to grow up and work in factories and work in jobs that they're going to have their entire lives. And I don't think it's very forward looking 
in that sense of, okay, in the year 2030, what are people actually going to be doing for a living and how can you best prepare a child for that? I think that's really where they need to be thinking. And hopefully that's something that is quite bipartisan. I think people can generally see, okay, there's certain flaws in that system and right. it needs to be improved. So I think that's where the energy needs to go. I don't think it's an either, I don't think it's an either or thing. I certainly don't like the idea of, you know, pulling kids away from their parents and putting them in whatever. But I think, you know, they can have their parents, you know, learning certain things from their parents. And then you can also have schools, universities, colleges where they learn other stuff. And hopefully both of those things together will produce decent people. Yeah. Just to be clear, I'm also not in favor <laughs> of the government <laughs> telling you what to do with your kids beyond, yeah. you know, maybe go to school. Sure. Um, but, it, but I can imagine parents who say, you know, I'm a terrible parent. <laughs> and uh, I think my kid would be better off, you know, six days a week in some kind of structured thing. And I'll spend as much time as I can with them during breaks and stuff. But I'm, I'm a bad parent. I, you know, the system can do better than I can. It'd be nice to have the choice. That's all I'm it's, it's, it's certainly an interesting idea. It's certainly an interesting idea. Um, so, yeah, go ahead. To, to your point, uh, my book, two books ago, it's called How to Fail Almost Everything and Still Win Big. And I tried to fill in that uh, strategy gap. Like, how, how do you build a life starting from nothing? And I talk about having systems to, you know, improve your fitness and health over time and adding talents to your talent stack. And the things that kids don't learn directly, they, they have to sort of figure it out by trial and error. And I thought, you know, that's really missing in school, just the strategy. Mm. And, and the very thing I said, which is, do you, do you think there are, you know, in an inner city school, let's say, do you think these kids are, are learning that they have a complete path to success? Or are they learning they have all these obstacles? It's like, oh, too bad you're poor and you're in this yeah. situation. I think that we don't teach them strategy. It's a gigantic problem. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think that there are, I don't know. I always say that the most obvious things, the most obvious gaps in the educational system to me, this goes both for the UK and the US, is lack of um, sort of financial and economic understanding of just how, you know, how, how do taxes work? How does a mortgage work? How do credit cards work? Just, just basic financial literacy. Um, and then also health and nutrition, right? Because I always think regardless of what anybody does, everybody is going to eat and everybody is going to work in some way, whether it's their own business or being employed or anything. Everyone's going to manage money. Everyone is going to eat food and has a body to look after. And the fact that neither of those two things are really taught but then you do learn all of this really random stuff that let's be honest, you aren't ever gonna you aren't ever gonna use unless you go into a really specialized field. I think it's pretty crazy that in 2019 those things are not being addressed. And my conspiracy hat theory hat comes on sometimes and thinks, hmm, maybe that's maybe that's intentional. Maybe they want people poor and weak and reliant on the government. <laughs> well, I, I can't go that far, but, but I will say. I haven't used trigonometry lately. No, no, or calculus or linear algebra. Yeah. yeah. Awesome, man. I'm just looking at the time. Um, so let people know where they can uh, find the book and also where they can follow your work online. Well, they can find Loser Think wherever fine books are sold. Okay. Uh, so Amazon, uh, every place, <laughs> yeah. airport, you name it. 
Awesome. You can find it, and you can find me on Twitter at at Scott Adams says all one word. Scott Adams says. Awesome, Scott. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been really great speaking to you personally at last and getting to know you and how your mind works a lot better. You're a very inspirational guy and uh, I love your insights. Everyone go check out the book. Thank you so much for having me on. I, I enjoyed every bit of this and uh, I hope, hope we'll talk again. Fantastic. Have a good day. Take care. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.